The first question I have for you for this morning is rhetorical, so please don't answer aloud. But I wonder what you think of this picture of Jesus here on the wall, not artistically, but theologically. Variety of opinions. Some believe strongly that it's sinful to have that picture here. It's breaking the second commandment. Many in our own denomination, some won't even worship in this building because of that picture. Others see nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with having a picture of Jesus. What do you think? And what might this picture inspire in you? Might it inspire something sinful? Or might it inspire something good? What do you think? Our passage this morning is Deuteronomy 4. So if you have your Bible open to that, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the living God. Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning in verse 15. This is Moses speaking to the people of God. You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, so that you do not become corrupt, and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman, or like any animal on earth, or any bird that flies in the air, or like any creature that moves along the ground, or any fish in the waters below. And when you look up to the sky and see the sun, the moon, and the stars, and all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshiping things the Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. But as for you, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron smelting furnace out of Egypt to be the people of his inheritance as you now are. The Lord was angry with me because of you and he solemnly swore that I would not cross the Jordan and enter the good land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. I will die in this land. I will not cross over the Jordan, but you are about to cross over and take possession of that good land. Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And after you have had children and grandchildren and have lived in the land a long time, if you then become corrupt and make any kind of idol doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God and provoking him to anger, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you this day that you will quickly perish from the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You will not live there long, but will certainly be destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and only a few of you will survive among the nations to which the Lord will drive you. There you will worship man-made gods of wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or eat, or smell. But if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him. If you look for him with all your heart and with all your soul, when you are in distress and all these things happen to you, then in later days you will return to the Lord your God and obey him. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers, which he confirmed to them by an oath." Continue reading, verse 32. And now about the former days, long before your time, from the day God created man on earth, ask from one end of the heavens to the other, has anything so great as this ever happened? Or has anything like it ever been heard of? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of the fire as you have and lived? Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation? 
by testings, by miraculous signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds, like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes. You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God. Beside him, there is no other. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do ask, thank you again for your word, for the truth that you speak to us about who you are through your word. And so now as we've prayed this morning and we pray continually that as we come to your word, that your Holy Spirit would be the teacher, that he would guide us to your truth and that only your truth would be applied to our hearts and our lives, that your truth would be what transforms us. So we pray now for the wisdom and the power and the enlightenment of your spirit as we come to your word for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. If you look again in verse 15, Moses says there that you saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. The people of Israel, as we've talked about multiple times in our time in Deuteronomy, they had a profound experience, a profound experience with God at Mount Sinai, which is here referred to as Horeb. The lightning, the thunder, the smoke, the fire. With their very own ears, they heard the voice of God, the voice of God speaking to them. In addition to the voice of God, they sensed the presence of God in in the holy fire that burned before their eyes. Scripture says that to the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. And so beyond the possibility of any doubt on the part of any person who is present there at Mount Sinai, there is a God. And that God spoke to them. And His presence was with them. It's kind of hard for us to appreciate it, you know, in our day of sophisticated uh, sound systems and speakers with these unbelievable capabilities. You know, we can record sound, we can play it remotely. And so hearing a, a booming voice from an unseen speaker, that's not that big of a deal to us. It doesn't even get our attention, though we have no idea what it would be like to hear the audible voice of God speak to us. We've got a lot of pyrotechnics today. We've seen shows, 4th of July shows, concerts. These unbelievable shows and displays uh, of light. But we have no idea whatsoever what the glorious, holy fire of God might look like. But when you're a nomad in the desert, a couple of thousand years before Christ was born and, and you hear a voice and it's the voice of God speaking to you and you see the fire of God and his glory. See, we hear the words, we know the story and we believe it's true that it really happened, but it isn't for us to experience those things, to hear God's audible voice, to see this fire. But we can read of how utterly overwhelming it was to someone who was there. Look what Moses says in verse 32. Ask about the former days, long before your time. From the day God created man on earth, ask from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything so great as this 
ever happened or has anything like it ever been heard of? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? Has any God ever tried to make for himself one nation out of other, another nation by testings and miraculous signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God. Beside him there is no other. For the entirety of human history, from the time of creation, nothing this great has ever happened before. Moses says, ask. Ask from one end of the heavens to the other. Nothing this great has ever happened, but it has happened to these people at Mount Sinai. So what should their response be to this profound, undeniably holy experience with God. Look at the second half of verse 15. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully, very carefully, so that you do not become corrupt and make an idol, make for yourselves an idol of any, uh, an image of any shape. And so this echoes the second commandment that we find in Exodus, where God says, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. That's the second commandment. But what's wrong? What's wrong with making an image that represents who God is? Well, anything any human could make or create by necessity would be a limitation on a God who is limitless, a God who is infinite, a God who is so transcendent It is beyond our ability to comprehend how far beyond our abilities and and comprehensions he, he truly is. So how can anyone who is created, which is every one of us and every human being, how can we take anything from what God has created, which is all the resources in the world around us, so how can a created thing take something created and make something and say that that represents the one who created all of it. God is incomprehensible, incomparable, and indescribable. So any image that any human could make of him would by necessity limit him. And so this prohibition from God about making an image, it should put God's people in awe of his absolute greatness. And any time they might be tempted to make an idol or an image like all the nations around them were doing, they could stop themselves and remember, "Ah, that's right, I can't make an idol. I, I can't make an image because my God, my God is too infinite, too awesome to be contained by anything that I could create. And that thought, in turn, should inspire them and give them great hope and great confidence and great faith and great trust because their God is so great, too great to be reduced to an idol. What they cannot do, what they could not ever do, could be done by one as great and limitless as the God who spoke to them. God emphasizes his infinite limitlessness 
even further in verse 19, if you'll look there. Not only did God tell his people not to make any images in human form or animal form or fish form, but he says, And when you look up to the sky and see the sun, the moon and the stars and all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshiping the things the Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. So even if you arrive at the conclusion, yeah, you know what? I should not make an image of God. Anything to represent him. But then you step out and you see the beauty of the Middle Eastern sky with the blazing sun, the bright blazing sun by day and, and the sun and the moon and the stars at night. A night where there's no other light pollution, just the stars. That might inspire you to worship. You know, the beauty of it, the vastness of it, how small and insignificant you feel beneath it, it might inspire you to worship. You know, the sun and its power and the universe and its vastness are probably the only things that still overwhelm us, you know, and make us feel small. Because we can't replicate them in, in, in their power or their vastness. They're too glorious. Well, God knows the glory of the things that he created and gave to us as a gift. His mind designed the sun and his word spoke it into being. Sun, be there. He said, sun, light up. And it lit up at his word. God could hold the sun if he chose to. And maybe God has held the sun. It's not too hot to burn him. It's not too bright for him to look at. Because God is even bigger than the most powerful thing that you and I know. The sun is not God's competitor. The sun is God's creation. And so God says, don't worship it. Would you turn to Isaiah chapter 40? It's an Old Testament. Keep flipping toward the New Testament. Isaiah chapter 40. And when you get to Isaiah chapter 40, look in verse 12. We read there, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? Or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord? Or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? Or who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? And now verse 18. To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? Verse 25. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all those? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. See, God asks such great questions all the time. We often think the question is for someone else. So God asks a question. We think if we keep our head down and don't make eye contact with God, then he'll skip over us and he will go to the valedictorian of the class who always has his head raised and his hand under the 
hands around the answer. But God asks these questions of each one of us, you and me. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal, says the Holy One. There's only one correct answer. No thing can compare to you, God. No one is equal to you, God. That's the only correct answer. Now, if you've chosen the correct answer this morning, raise your hand if you believe that's the right answer. Oh, dear. (laughs) Only half of y'all think that there's no one can compare to God. I'm going to try that one more time. How many of you think that that's the right answer, that no one can compare to God? Now we're getting a little bit better. All right, so now here's the question. If you truly believe that, oh, and if you don't believe that, I would love to talk to you some more later. If you truly believe that, how does your life look like you believe that there is no one that compares to God, that no one is his equal? Because, you know, you and I aren't tempted to bow down before statues or images of wood or stone, but we are tempted especially in our scientifically and technologically advanced culture, to replace God, to believe that we no longer really need God to get through the day. We, we believe that. But we would only ever have that thought if we weren't contemplating the greatness of God and the transcendence of God and recognizing that God is the source of every good thing in our lives. Or when we forget that God cannot be duplicated or represented by anything that we could design or craft. But sometimes we forget those things, and we come up with God replacements. You know, the thing to which you run first, or instead of God, that's your idol, or your God replacement. And by running first to that thing or that person, by depending first on that thing or that person, you worship it. So whether it's the independence that you feel because you have a healthy bank account, because it's the comfort that you receive from someone else or some other substance, or the confidence and invincibility you feel because you live in a a safe neighborhood, you have a great security system to protect your house and your things and your family, and you have a great doctor and great medicine to, to protect and sustain your health. When you run first and foremost to those things, they're your idols. Your gods, they're your God replacements. I, I, I don't need you, Lord. I have these other things. Because we're supposed to be dependent on God. Lord, if you don't provide I don't receive. We're supposed to be comforted by Him. Our confidence is supposed to come because of who we are in Christ. We may not be tempted to bow down to images of wood or stone, but when we forget God's greatness and His transcendence and His power, not only do we replace Him, but, but we limit Him. Even if we try to limit Him with our theological statements or assumptions. And so this prohibition... Not to make an idol should remind us all, each of us today and every theologian in our own denomination and and everywhere else, that no one has God completely figured out. No one has God completely figured out. And when we claim that we do, or when we lose our ability to, to ponder, to wonder, to meditate, to ask questions, to humbly say, I, I don't know, then We limit the limitless God. 
But people who understand what God is saying here, don't make an image, have all the arrogance drained right out of them. And they become humble, humble people. They become bowing people, bowing before the Lord, kneeling before the Lord. The physical uh, gesture of it reminds us of our position before the Lord. He is great and we are small, so we bow before Him in recognition of who we are before Him. And then, as we bow, joy comes along and takes our humility by the hand and lifts us up off of our feet and lifts our, our, our chin because we have complete faith and trust and hope in our transcendent, limitless God to whom no thing or no one can compare. And so no wonder the psalmist writes in Psalm 42, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me, hope in God? What can our transcendent, incomparable, incomprehensible, indescribable, limitless God not do? And so now you think, well, Craig's against that picture. He wants us to cover it up or he wants it taken down. But are you sure? Maybe you're thinking, well, I, I didn't see much problem with that picture before, but, but, but now maybe I think we should take it down. But are you sure we should do that? Well, let's see. Again, we ask, what can our transcendent, incomparable, limitless God not do? What can he not do? The angel Gabriel came to Mary. And you know this story. We just read it a lot. But this is what he said when he came to Mary. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin. Gabriel answered, well, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, And she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. And that includes limiting himself by becoming a man. It's amazing, this unseen God who is above all, over all, the source of all, who's indescribable, uncontainable, limitless, transcendent, he took on flesh, and became a man by his own choice. And so for me personally, the incarnation is the most amazing act of all. Because in my mind, I can sort of, kind of get my mind around the resurrection. Christ being raised again from the dead. Because God raised people from the dead through his prophets in the Old Testament. Jesus raised people from the dead, the widow's son and Lazarus. He brought them back to life. And so uh, when I read about that, I just think, well, God is doing what he has in his uh, power and prerogative to do. God's been doing that since creation. He, He formed Adam out of the dust of the ground, and then he breathed his life into him. And so for God to breathe life into a a new body or or to breathe life back into a body that the breath of life had, had escaped from, 
that's not such a stretch for my mind. Though, it's a miracle that only God can do. So, you know, I'm not making light of that. But what I can't comprehend is how God, this transcendent God, could confine himself to a body. We can't even confine our clothes in a suitcase. You know, we, we cram, we push, we shove. If anybody here is old enough to remember the days of those old hard shell suitcases, we would sit on them and we would bounce on them until we could get the, the, the latch to, to, to clasp. How do you fit the one who created the universe, the one who can hold the sun, the one who dwells outside of the universe into a human body, and not just a human body, but, but a baby's body, and not just a baby's body, but, but fit that into a womb? What kind of power do you need to be able to do that? Many believed that, that it couldn't happen. People with, in the church. And so they formulated ideas that, that seemed more reasonable to them. And so heresies developed. One was called docetism because docetics believed that the unseen God could not become man. Not really. And so they said that Jesus only seemed to be a man. He only appeared to be a man. He was a phantasm, an illusion. That's what they believed. Jesus wasn't real because they couldn't get their mind around the incarnation. You know, others who were accused of being docetics held that Jesus was a man in the flesh, but Christ was something different. And that when Jesus, the man, was baptized, then Christ, through the power of his Holy Spirit, came and lived in Jesus' body. And then before Jesus went to die on the cross that the divine part of him exited his body and Jesus was just a man on the cross because they couldn't get their mind around the incarnation, that the unseen God would become seen. Others believed in adoptionism or uh, monarchianism or modalism, whatever you want to call the heresy. And they couldn't get their mind around the incarnation, so they said, oh, well, God just adopted Jesus. Jesus was a good man and he lived this sinful life devoted to God And so God adopted him somewhere along the way. And when God adopted this human person, then God made him divine. And he continues to be divine now because they couldn't get their mind around the incarnation. Any one of these heresies is really easier to believe, isn't it? But here's the problem. They're not true. None of them. Jesus is the unseen God. Come in the flesh. He is 100% God. He is 100% man. And the Apostle John knew this. John could not abide other people saying things about Jesus that, that were not true. And so he wrote these words in the first chapter uh, of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And what happened? The Word, God, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. What did he write? Chapter 1, verse 1 of the first letter he wrote, John says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which our eyes have seen, which we have looked at, our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. There's no doubt that by some tremendous power, this limitless God chose to limit himself to a real human body. It was a limitation he placed upon himself. And I wonder why. Why would this unseen God do this? We want to make the answer about ourselves. We want to be the center because we're very self-centered people. Well, he did it for me because he loves me so much. And that's true. 
For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. Whosoever believes in him should have eternal life. That's true. Scripture tells us that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And so we should be overwhelmed that the God of the universe took on flesh to show, to, to, to show us himself and to show his love and to save us. But the unseen God becoming the visible God isn't just about you and me. Can I say that again? The unseen God becoming the visible God isn't just about us. It's about his kingdom. What did the angel Gabriel say to Mary? He'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom, his kingdom will never end. And so this is also about the kingdom of God. God taking on flesh is about the advance of his kingdom for his own glory here on earth. Can I tell you about one more heresy? Y'all wake up. Ooh, heresy. Oh, everybody's head popped up. It's amazing. It's church history time. There was another heresy uh, that, that plagued the church. You've probably heard about this one, Gnosticism. And I could say a lot about Gnosticism, but I don't want to. I just want to say this one thing about what they believed. And Gnostics believed this, that everything in the physical world, everything in the material world was evil. Only that which was spiritual was good. Uh, God didn't even create the material world. It was created by a lesser God, an evil God called the Demiurge. So God is so transcendent, he has nothing to do with the material world or what is created. God's too perfect to be involved with it. So salvation for the Gnostics uh, was escape from the bondage of this material physical body and this material physical existence. And that escape came through some kind of special knowledge, not through faith in Jesus Christ, because Jesus couldn't be God because God and flesh can't mingle because flesh is evil and spirit is not. And so my question is, is Gnosticism still alive in the church? I wonder if you have heard what I always heard growing up, what I continue to hear to this day, particularly about physical things if something goes wrong. Well, it doesn't matter. It's all going to burn anyway. Have you ever heard that? Has anybody ever said that? Well, it doesn't matter. It's all going to burn anyway. And that attitude, which has a little bit of Gnosticism in it, it really affects and impacts our thinking and our actions. Because evangelical Christians, not unlike the Gnostics of old, we focus on knowledge. We focus on the knowledge and the words of the gospel. And evangelical Christians are notoriously unconcerned for the material, physical needs of people because, hey, it doesn't matter. It's all going to burn anyway. But when John the Baptist was in prison and when he was sitting there alone, he began to wonder, oh, gee, is Jesus really the Messiah? Is he really the one that, that, that he claims to be? So he sent two of his disciples to Jesus to ask him, are you the one or, we should, or should we look for somebody else? And this was Jesus' response. Go back to John and report what you have seen, seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is preached to the poor. So Jesus said, tell John, not just words I'm speaking to you, but tell him what you have seen. Jesus didn't just give this well-worded uh, uh, defense of the hypostatic union. That's not what he said to John. He said, tell John, look at what you have seen, because proof of Jesus' incarnation, of his Messiahship, 
was not just in his words, but it was in his actions. Jesus' attitude was not, well, it doesn't matter. It's all going to burn anyway. Because you know what? It isn't all going to burn anyway. It's going to be redeemed and reclaimed and renewed. God is establishing now his kingdom that will last forever and ever. And so like the Gnostics of old, too often evangelical Christians, that's us, we're separatists. We think the world is an evil place. And so we separate ourselves from it. And it's people who are not Christian. We think for some reason that we are supposed to be transcendent above it all. But we shouldn't think that. Because God wasn't. The one who was unseen, who was and continues to be transcendent, became eminent. He took on flesh and he lived in this world. God cares about people. The whole person. Body and spirit. And that's why Jesus healed the physical body. He didn't go to the blind person and say, oh, your body doesn't matter. It's okay if you're blind, just believe. Hang in there. And then your spirit will go to heaven. He didn't tell the leper who asked for healing, I know your body parts are falling off, but that doesn't matter. Just believe. Hang in there. And one day your spirit will go to heaven. That's not what Jesus did. He healed people's physical bodies. And what about creation? Creation isn't waiting to be destroyed. Creation is waiting to be set free. That's what Romans chapter 8 tells us, that the creation is waiting in eager anticipation and expectation with the hope that, listen, it will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. That's creation. God places value on the physical world and the people around us. And he doesn't call you and me to be separate from it or from them. We are called as God's people to use the gifts that he has given us to redeem the world, the people around us through the gospel. To love people enough... to, to, to care about their physical and, and emotional suffering and, and, and to demonstrate that love by doing what we can for them. And then, then, after, we, after those people have seen and after they have touched real love, demonstrated to them in a real, tangible way, then we can tell them the words that the God that they thought might not exist, that the God that they might have believed was distant from them, that the God that they believed did not care about them, just loved them. That God that they believed those things about just loved them through you or for me because we love him. And then after you've helped somebody, after I've helped somebody with a very real, very pressing, physical, emotional, intellectual need, when we've helped them and shown them true love and compassion and mercy, and then they say to us, Well, there's no God. God doesn't care about me. God doesn't love me. Then we can ask, really? Then then where did I come from? Why, Why do you think I'm here? Why do you think I'm helping you? I'm helping you because of the love I have experienced in God through Christ. And I now share that love with you. And then it becomes harder to deny the love of God in the face of real, touchable, identifiable mercy and love and compassion. So, 
What about this picture? <laughs> well, I did not limit God to a human physical body. God made that choice. He chose to define himself in that way, to reveal himself in that way as a man. Even now in heaven and forever and ever, Jesus will have a physical body. He did not cast it aside. Jesus now reigns in heaven with his glorified body. I'm not going to worship that picture. I don't want you to worship that picture. I'm going to worship Christ. But if that picture reminds us that the God of the universe, who for all that time was unseen, if it reminds us that he came near to us, and if that picture inspires us as human beings, just like Christ was a human being, to get near people, to be hearable, and touchable, and seeable, to become incarnate, to actually be present in the lives of people, then I say the picture has served a good purpose. And I hope it reminds us every time we see it, every Sunday of 2014, that our transcendent God came near to us. I hope it reminds us of the work that he did for us, the kingdom that he is now building through us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you again for your word. And even as we bow in prayer now, we do bow, Lord, in humility. Humility just coming from the fact that we're trying to, with words, explain and define you, who you are the incomprehensible God, the, the limitless God, the infinite God. Lord, we thank you that you love us enough to reveal your truth to us. You make it accessible to us. You give us your spirit to teach us your truth. And so we are not without hope. In fact, we're with great hope because we can read clearly of your love and your grace and your mercy. We can read uh, and know clearly, Lord, the truth and the good news of the gospel and the work, Lord Jesus, that you did on the cross for us how you can be fully God and fully man, we can't comprehend that. We leave that to you, but we believe the truth of your word that tells us that it is so. And all the implications of it, because only one perfect, as you, Lord, are perfect, could pay the price for sin. And so we thank you for it. And and Lord, I pray that remembering who you are in your incarnation, Remembering what you've done by taking on flesh and dwelling among us would inspire us as human beings to be incarnate in the world around us. Not hiding from it, not separate from it, not clumped together in a holy huddle. But Lord, that we would be inspired to be right in the midst of it as you were in the midst of it. And Lord, we pray that as we do that, through the power of your spirit, you would be at work building your kingdom through us, building your kingdom through our deeds of love and grace and mercy, building your kingdom as we speak the words of the gospel and call people to faith in you. May your kingdom grow in us and through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.